Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Koinonia Church Message Library. Our hope is that today's message encourages you, challenges you, and brings you closer to Jesus. We are confident that God's Word is living and active and is relevant for us today. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. All right. Well, good morning. Are we ready for the Word today? Yes, it's going to be a great morning. I, I, I love watching those baby dedications, and I just feel so, so connected to those parents trying to wrangle that two-year-old. I just feel like I see you, I feel you at the core of my being. <laughs> if you're a parent, you've totally been there like, it's okay, it's all good. But it's, it's just so good to just pray over them. And, and I'm just, I'm excited about the word today because I feel like, when you were praying about those boys not being in competition with one another, today's message is about that. Really, it is about that. Because we're going to talk about part two of Joseph's story. Last week, Pastor Nathan brought the very beginning of this series, The Gospel Unfolded. And we're really focusing on this story of Joseph and how Joseph is foreshadowing Jesus in many ways, in many parallels throughout his life. And so we're going to look at more of that today today. But just as a recap, I love how he introduced this idea of how to read the scripture. You know, we usually like to just jump right in and be like, what is God speaking to me today? What do I need? God, just tell me what you want from me today from this scripture. But first, it's actually very important that we stop and look at the big picture. We stop and zoom out to God, what are you doing? What is your plan? He showed this um, picture. I think we still have that one. Yeah. Um, Yeah, here of showing the gospel unfolded, the big picture of God through creation. Then there's the fall and the sin that enters the world. And then his promise um, to crush the serpent, right? And now he is, in Genesis, we're talking about the genesis of this family through Abraham that God is going to preserve and bless and bring his son through this family, through Abraham, Isaac, and we're really focused, oh, and Jacob, and we're focused on Joseph, And I I love how he talked about last week, the main point was this, that God can turn brokenness around, that God can work through broken families to redeem and work out his purpose, that nothing can stop that from happening because God is powerful enough to do that. And whatever brokenness there is in your family, God is powerful enough to redeem and turn it around. Amen? That's the encouragement to us. But just to recap, Jacob's family was full of jealousy, favoritism, deceit, betrayal, many things wrapped up in this family. And now Joseph is the favorite son. He's the one who has his father's favor. His brothers in the first part in Genesis 37, 1 to 11, it says three times in there that they hate him. Three times it says that. They hated him. They were jealous of him. And because Jacob has given Joseph this ornate robe. And in some of the commentaries I was reading, it was talking about how the robe would have not just been like a short robe for working in. It was like long sleeve to the ground, full of color, signifying a position of favor, but also a position of authority. And Joseph is not the oldest son. So this is really rubbing his brothers the wrong way, to put it lightly, as we're going to see. 
he also is 17 years old. And when he goes out into the fields and comes back, he brings a bad report about them to his father. So he's like the family tattletale. The other week, I was in the neighborhood with some of our neighbors, and the kids were all playing, and one of the three-year-old girls, she comes marching back, and she comes to me, and she's like, and they were that, 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 and she has this whole report. Like, it was like a three-minute report, and I was like, go ahead, yep, let me know. So they were doing this and that, and I barely understood anything, but it was very clear that it was important to her to bring a report <laughs> about what was going on. And so she was coming to Tattletale, and this is the reputation that Joseph has. Like, oh man, here comes Joseph. He's going to go tell her dad all the bad things we're doing. Then Joseph has these two dreams in which the sheaves of wheat are bowing down to him. There's 11 of them bowing down to him. And then the sun, moon, and stars, they're bowing down to him. And he goes and he tells his brothers, and obviously it's inferred, you are the sheaves of wheat, and I'm the one that you're bowing down to. And you are the sun, moon, and stars, and I'm the one that you're bowing down to. So this just adds insult to injury, right? They're already jealous because he's the favored son. And now he's having these dreams, which he is boldly telling them about. So it's just not good. So this is where we are today. We're going to focus on Genesis 37, verse 12 to 36. And as I was going through this, I was thinking, I was looking for, you know, the three points. Just wrap this all up nice and tidy. But today is really about observing the scripture. And we're going to walk through the verses and observe what do we see in there. Um, I love the SOAP method of journaling, which many of you may be familiar with. The SOAP method, it stands for, the S in SOAP stands for scripture. You look at a scripture. The O stands for observation. What observations do you make about that scripture? The A stands for application. How do you apply the scripture to your life? And the P stands for prayer. So writing out a prayer about how you want and asking God to help you apply it to your life. But I find, I've always been somewhat confused and sometimes I interchange, and I, whenever I'm in group settings where people are doing this, we interchange the observation and application. Like, this it seems like a blurry line. Like, when is it observation and when is it application to my life? But I think, it, and, and usually I like to s- sort of skip the observation part, like I said, and just go straight to like, okay, yeah, that's cool, but like, what are you speaking to me today, God? Is it making it about me? But I think it's very important, and I hope that today is just a demonstration of how I observe the scripture. And we're just going to walk through like an observation. And we will make application throughout. But I think it's important for us to first, as Nathan was saying, Pastor Nathan was saying last week, that we, we first want to understand the narrative in the context of God's big story before we start to see ourselves in the story. Because the tendency, especially in this one, is that I see myself in Joseph, and how Joseph rises above, and how I can be encouraged to rise above. But today, I actually see myself in the brothers, because today's segment is very much about them, and revealing the heart, that jealous heart that's in them, and what it drives them to do. So we're going to make observations, and we're going to ask questions, and we're going to see what we see in, this, in this, these verses. So we're going to start In Genesis 37, verse 12, it says this. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. 
So he said, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. So remember that Joseph has a reputation for bringing back a bad report. And it's just interesting now that after all that's transpired and his dreams and the coat and everything, his dad is like, hey, go out and check on your brothers. Like, he already has a reputation of being the tattletale, and now his dad is specifically sending him out to go and tell, bring back the report of the day. And I can just imagine him like, yeah, you're going to go down there and you're going to check on your brothers, and oh, wear your coat. No, not that coat. The one with the long sleeves and the lots of colors, the one that goes to the ground. And don't go and help them. You're not going to help them graze the flocks. Just go oversee them. Go oversee them. That'll be great. Like, brilliant. Great idea. What do you think is going to happen? They, they hate him. They don't want him to come around in their brightly colored coat being like, how's it going, guys? Like, are you going to help us out here? No? Okay. Joseph obeys his father's command, and he goes out into the field. The next bit is very interesting to me. It says, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. This part of the scripture is just so interesting to me. I don't really have answers, only questions. Why is this detail important? Why not just say, and Joseph found them in Dothan, and when they saw him coming, they plotted to kill him. Like, why not just skip this part? What is the significance of this random man in the field? And why is it significant that Joseph is a wandering in the field? Is he lost? Is he procrastinating? Because that's what I'd be doing. Like, I'm wearing this brightly colored coat and I'm going to check on my brothers who hate me. And I just told them this dream. And, like, maybe I'll find the long way around. <laughs> and I don't have answers to this except that is it an angel? <laughs> is this God's, you know, random man planted there to make sure Joseph does indeed go to his brothers and doesn't just get lost wandering in the fields and, like, eat, actually eaten by a ferocious animal? I don't know. I just think it's interesting that it's here. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's that point. <laughs> and sometimes this happens, doesn't it? When you're reading the scripture, you go, that's interesting. I've never slowed down to read this scripture long enough to notice that there was a random man who pointed him towards his brothers. Interesting. Is Joseph just that wandering dreamer? Is that part of his personality? I don't know. But obviously, if there's anything that I could glean from this, it is that God is directing Joseph's steps, that God is putting people in the, in the path to, and later we'll see some of his brothers speaking up to try and save his life. You know, there, God does have a plan for Joseph and his dream, God's dream for Joseph. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. That dreamer, here comes that dreamer. This is not a term of endearment. Like, oh, sweet, Joseph the dreamer. It's an insult. You know, that... 
Their, Joseph's dream is an, a direct insult to them, they feel. It is a threat. They are threatened by these dreams. It's not just like, oh, that dreamer kid. No, here comes that dreamer. And they are trying to make light of his dream, trying to belittle it. It is an insult. They must have some sense that, that these dreams are from God. Otherwise, why, or that, they, that these dreams could come to pass. Otherwise, why be threatened by them? But they are. They are deeply threatened because the worst thing in their mind that could happen is that they would bow down to him. That is, that is the worst thing in their mind that that could happen. The irony is this, and spoiler alert, it is in fact their salvation if these dreams come to pass. Isn't that interesting? That the very thing that they think would be the worst thing is actually part of God's plan to rescue them. And this gets me thinking, what if Joseph's story is not about Joseph at all? What if Joseph's story is about these brothers and the people that God wants to save? What if Jesus' story is about us being saved and rescued? It is, isn't it? That is why he came. That is why Jesus came. And that's why God is positioning Joseph. That's why God gave these dreams to Joseph, because he cares for the brothers, because he wants to save them. He, this is his family. This is his family that he loves, that he is preserving to bring Jesus into the world through this family line. But they are so jealous, they are so full of hate that they think in order to destroy the dream and make sure it does not happen, we need to kill the dreamer. And so they are out to destroy this dream. So they decide to throw him into an empty cistern. You know, I tech. I've typically, when I read this story, I think about the pit, Joseph being thrown in the pit, and I think, you know, I lump it in with one of the things that Joseph overcomes and rises above, and that's true to a point, but really this section, he doesn't stay in the pit very long, actually, and this section, like I said, is really more about revealing the heart of his brothers and seeing the, the ugliness of their sin, the ugliness of their hearts, and revealing their need of a savior, their need for reconciliation and forgiveness. So they want to throw him into the pit. Then they want to lie to their dad about how he died. So this isn't just an attack on Joseph. This is also an attack on their father because it's really that him that they're mad at. You know, he's the one that's bestowing this favor on, this, on their brother that they feel is not fair. It's not right. It's not just. So they want to get back at him because they resent their father as well. So they say, then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. The implication being that nothing will come of his dreams because we've prevented it from happening. They think they have that power to prevent these dreams from coming to pass. But the truth is, if the dream is from God, nothing and no one can stop it from being fulfilled. Nothing and no one can stand in the way. No enemy, no jealous rage and hate can stand in the way of God fulfilling the dream that he has for Joseph. 
Even if they cause pain, even if they have ill intent and evil plans, God can turn it all for his purpose. If we zoom out and see the parallel with Jesus, there were people that plotted to kill him as well. This is one of the ways that Joseph is a type of Christ and is foreshadowing the things that will happen to Jesus. But I want to pause here and make application and talk about jealousy. Because I think that this, if there is application to take, it's not overcoming the pit. It's guarding our hearts against jealousy. And about how, how jealousy can motivate us to all forms of evil. This is what it says in James 3, 14 to 16. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, wisdom, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. That's a strong warning. That's a really strong warning against to guard our hearts against jealousy. Proverbs 27 verse 4 says, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? The implication here is that anger is bad, but jealousy is worse. Jealousy, what begins as that seed of I have compared myself to this person and I am found wanting. I am inferior. Someone else has gained favor from someone that, I, is, that is important to me and I have not. Therefore, I will be left out. Therefore, I will be overlooked. Therefore, I'm going to miss out on great things. This is the seed of jealousy that begins to breed. And that these are the thoughts that it begins with. It begins there. But then it can easily, quickly snowball into bitterness, resentment, anger, rage. And plotting to kill, that is the extreme of jealousy. I am so jealous of this person, I just want to take them out. Completely erase who they are. I have three daughters, and now I'm starting to realize, just I felt the Holy Spirit speaking this to my heart this week. Heidi, we need to be careful to guard against jealousy. I'm seeing it. My daughters are two, four, and six. But if one of them gets invited, one of them, my middle daughter, just got invited to a birthday party, and the older one did not get invited. First time this has happened. Because usually it's the other way around. The oldest one, you know, first one going to school, first one, you know, you know, having play dates and stuff. She's usually the one that gets invited, but this time the tables were turned and it was very interesting to watch. Like, what? But I want to go. Well, you didn't get invited. <laughs> that is a hard pill to swallow when you're six. Sorry. We can't make everything fair. We do our best. There's some things that we really do try to make fair between all three, but you can already see this bit of like that seed being planted. Ah, she gets something I don't. Well, you never do that for me. The other day I had my little daughter out with me because I was off and she doesn't go to school and the other two are at school and I bought her a little purse at the thrift store. That was a problem because that $1.50 I spent on her, they're like calculating in her mind. Well, I never get to do that. I don't get that. These are real conversations in my house. 
And it is a very real thing to guard against jealousy. We're going to celebrate super awesome. Bridget gets to go to a birthday party. Woo! And they're like, no, seriously, that is how you turn this around. you got to celebrate what other people get. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That is, I think, not just like a nice statement. I think it's like critical to the health of our souls to not enter into jealousy and weep with those who weep, to not be boasting about the things that we get and they don't get, but to say, I'm going to enter into that place of compassion with you. So the other night, I was, it was bedtime and I was talking to my six-year-old daughter and just sharing a, a bit about this. And then I felt I, rem- I had this memory and I shared this story with her. When I was a, a teenager in high school, I mean, I compared myself with everyone every day. You know, like, oh, I'm not as smart as her, not as athletic as her, not as pretty as her, not as whatever, not as whatever, not as whatever. This is like the constant flow in my mind. And there was one girl in particular that I compared myself with, and we barely had a relationship, but from afar, I judged her. From afar, I felt jealous of her and never really dealt with that. And it wasn't until I was away at university, and it was the beginning of Facebook, and I joined Facebook, and I, you know, then it's like the scrolling begins. Who else is on here? Oh, my goodness. And literally her name popped up, and I felt the ugly feeling of disgust in that moment. I'm alone in my dorm room feeling angry, <laughs> and I'm like whoa. It took, it took me back. It made me pause, and I'm sitting on my bed going, oh, wow, I need to deal with this. Like, I, I felt that strong, like, ugliness of my heart. The jealous ugliness came out, Urgh, her, just from her name. And I also, at the same time, felt God say, pray for her. And immediately, I said, no. <laughs> no, I can't do that. I'm not doing that can't. Because to pray for someone is to pray God's best over them. To pray for someone is to release blessing over them. To pray for someone is to affirm their value. To pray for someone is to to lift them up, to lower yourself in prayer, to serve them, to wish well on them. I could not do that. It was so gripped my heart, like, no. And I remember, I I remember feeling that, like, wrestling with God, feeling like, I can't. I can't pray for her. She hasn't even barely done anything to me. All I do, all, but it's jealousy that has just gripped my heart. And I, I felt like I couldn't do it until I said, okay, God, I will. And started out like, okay, thank you, Jesus, for this girl. Seriously. But as I began to pray, I, it's like I felt the thaw happen. It's like I felt the, the tentacles ungripping my heart. Like I felt that release happening. And I began to pray with more faith, putting faith behind my prayers. God, I pray that she experiences your presence like never before. God, I pray that she finds herself right in the middle of your plan and that she is in a healthy place. And what I just began to pray over her. And it was just like God released me from that bitterness and that resentment. I want to encourage you, maybe you're in that place and you, you see someone from afar and you're like, oh, <laughs> or just the thought of someone makes that bitterness and 
and angst rise up inside of you, and I encourage you to pray for them. Begin to put your faith behind it, because I believe that it, this had nothing to do with her, really, although I, I hope and my prayers come to fruition for her life. But really, in that moment, it was about me being free. Pray for them. Even if it's awkward at first, even if you don't want to, because jealousy can eat you up. It can eat you up from the inside out, and it is not good. And God is saying, guard against it. I see myself in these brothers. I can see how they would get to that point, and I say, oh God, I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. I need reconciliation. Thank you that you were with Joseph through that entire process, and in the end, when his brothers come and bow down before him, they receive that forgiveness that they so don't deserve but need. I just love how God is about that plan, that he cares so much for those brothers, that he is positioning Joseph to rescue them. I wonder if Reuben is trying his best to deal with that jealousy, because in verse 21 it says, When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and then take him back to his father. So Reuben is obviously trying to intervene, and his suggestion works. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So they strip him of his robe. They strip him of that. Like That is like the sticking point. That is the thing that is the visual reminder of the favor that he's received, and they strip it right off of him and take it. And as we know, Jesus also was stripped of his clothes and left in a place where the people who plotted to kill him thought, there's no way, we will strip him of his robe, and there's no way he can rescue himself from this. That's what they think when they're putting him in the pit. We'll take his robe, and we're going to throw him in there, and there's no way he's going to get out. As we know, there is a way. As we know, God can make a way where there seems to be no way. So they strip him of his robe. They put him in there. As they sat down to eat their meal, just having a picnic, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. Pay attention to Judah. I can't go into his whole story, but it is through Judah's line that Jesus comes, and his story is quite interesting and one of its own filled with sin and bad choices. But Judah here is saying, why don't we try and save him? He is, after all, still our brother. Like, this should mean something to us, that he's our brother. And so they say, okay. I just think it's interesting that as they sit down, so Joseph is really only in the pit for, like, the length of this lunch, it seems, um, because right at that moment, oh, hello and behold, who's coming by? These people, these traders who are on their way to, where are they going? 
Egypt. Interesting. That happened right then. That's crazy timing. (laughs) Or is it? So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So they pull him out and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Does this remind you of anyone? Yes. Another way that Joseph's life is parallel to Jesus is that Jesus was also sold and betrayed for 30 shekels of silver. So Joseph understands the betrayal. And this is a picture of what happened to Jesus, that betrayal. But the timing is amazing that these guys come by on their way to Egypt. So the brothers are feeling pretty smug to have the upper hand. They think, that's it. We've washed our hands of this dreamer, and he's on his way far away from here, and nothing will become of his dreams now. <laughs> I just think that's funny. That that's what they, they are, they're so sure they have done it. They have completed this job. They have ruined his life. And meanwhile, they have sent him straight to the middle of the place where he needs to be. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? So at some point he had left and come back and he sees that his brother's not there and he's in mourning. So he tears his clothes. So then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. So the lies are just unbelievable here to ruin their father's life like this. We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So in his mind, it's over. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. He refuses to be comforted. This is it. It is over. He feels like he's going to take this mourning and this feeling to the grave, that there's no hope left. Verse 36. Meanwhile. That's a good word. I love that word. Meanwhile. While my dad, his dad, Jacob, dad, is in deep mourning, thinking his favorite son is dead. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So he doesn't just get sold to anyone. He's sold to one of Pharaoh's officials. So meanwhile, meanwhile, this looks like your reality. This looks like it's over. It looks like there's no hope left. You're in mourning. But meanwhile... God is positioning Joseph to rescue them. Meanwhile, God is at work. Meanwhile, God still has a plan. When you think that all hope is lost, God has a plan. He is moving things into place. He is in motion. It doesn't mean that Joseph's story is about to get much better. He's still a slave. There's much suffering for him to endure. However, It does mean that God's plan will prevail even in the suffering that he will face. You know, there is an enemy of our lives trying to snuff out the God dreams, trying to thwart God's plan, 
trying to discourage, trying to mess things up, divide families from competition and jealousy. But God. But meanwhile, in the midst of the enemy's work, meanwhile, God is good. Meanwhile, God is still sovereign. Meanwhile, God still has a plan, and he is good. Would you stand with me for a moment as we pray today? I don't know what it is that you are facing, that you feel like hope is lost. We prayed for those breakthrough, those three things that we're saying, God, these are the things. And I have had one of the same things on that three things list for however many years we've been doing it. I've had one of the same things on there. And it can be very easy to think, it's never going to change. It's been years. But as we look through Joseph's story, you will see many years go by, and it does not mean that God is not at work. In fact, he is at work doing something not just in Joseph's life, but in our lives. He is at work. His heart is for reconciliation. His heart is for salvation. His heart is that you know that despite the jealous anger in your heart, he loves you. (laughs) Despite the ugliness of the things that you know are in you, he came to save you. He came to rescue you. Thank you, God, for your grace. Would you hold out your arms and just receive his mercy and grace today. This is the gospel unfolded that Jesus, you came to lay down your life. The people thought that they were gonna take you out. They plotted to kill you, but it was really to lay down your life. That is why you came. And thank you, God, that you are so powerful that you did not leave him in the grave, but Jesus was raised to new life again. And we receive that life today, God. We receive that eternal life that makes us whole, makes us new, makes us clean. Oh God, help us, help us. Reveal to us the things in our hearts, the ugliness of the sin in our hearts. Help us to lay it at your feet and receive instead your mercy and your grace. Just take a moment now, if there's something on your heart that you just, God has revealed to you, I just encourage you to talk to God about it. Talk to God about it. God, right now I pray for families, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, God, you know the way that we compare ourselves to one another. You know the way that the enemy wants to work in competition, feeling inferior, feeling like we don't have a place with our our father or our mother. Oh God, help us to see that you are our father. You invite us in. You welcome us in. You have given us value. You have given us purpose. And regardless of the things we face with one another, I thank you, God, that you would affirm that in our hearts today. Would you heal those places in our hearts where we feel less than, 
We feel like we don't measure up. We feel like other people have been favored and we've been left out. But God, thank you that your favor rests on us, your children. Your favor goes before us as a shield. Thank you that we are favored in your eyes and it's because of Jesus. It is because Jesus made a way that we could be part of your beautiful family. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We thank you, God, that you are our champion, that you fight for us, that we can come to you with every need in our lives, everything that's going on, and we can lay it at your feet. And as we declare these words, you are our champion. God, may it be real in our hearts. Would you show us how you are our champion today? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We want to encourage you to let the Holy Spirit sink today's message into your heart, to let it transform you and bring new life. If you want to learn more about Koinonia, you can go to kcf.life to get connected. Thank you for being a part of our community. If today's message encouraged you, we would love for you to rate it and review it and share it with a friend. We love you. Let's continue to build God's kingdom together.